Father, we are uh, grateful to be able to gather together. Lord, what a blessing, Lord, to have this space and uh, to have and to make this time. And Lord, we uh, and thank you for the word as well, Lord, which is available to us. And so we pray, Lord, for hearts that are ready to receive from you, Lord. There's a lot that can hinder uh, sort of the entrance of your word into our lives. It could be the hardness of our hearts, the busyness of our days, the cares of this world, Lord, so many things. And uh, for a bit, we want to put those things aside. And we do want to ask that you would come and minister to us through your holy word. We believe that your word is alive and it's active and we desire to have sort of the soil of our hearts ready to receive the seed of the word that it might go down deep and bear much fruit. And so, Lord, we pray for your blessing on our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as uh, I said, we're in chapter 6 of the book of 1 Timothy, uh, which is the final chapter in this particular book. We've been in this book now, I don't know, five months or so, making our way through. And we're coming to the portion of the book, obviously, chapter 6, last chapter, where Paul is sort of concluding, he's wrapping up his thoughts, he's bringing it all together, he's putting the bow on it, uh, and soon he'll be saying amen uh, at the close of the book, which I think will be our next time that uh, we gather together, that I'm here with you, and we gather together, we'll finish this book. As you may remember, when Paul returned to chapter 6, he returned to that important topic, which he began the book, which was false teachers and false teachings, and those various things that he was sending Timothy to the community of Ephesus to deal with, to correct, to right the ship, so to speak, in the direction that that ship was moving there in the city of Ephesus, problems had entered in, and it was going to be the responsibility of Timothy there uh, to deal with it. And again, a lot of that had to do with the false teachers and the false teachings, And we looked at, as we started chapter 6, actually started verse 3 of chapter 6, we looked at a lot of the motivations of the false teachers, things like pride, things like an unhealthy desire for controversy, uh, greed as a primary motivation. I'll be godly if I can get money off of this. That sounds good. You know, all these kinds of things that motivated the false teachers. And you remember, and this was our study last week, Paul focuses on Timothy now, and he says, look, I'm done talking about them. Now I want to talk about you, Timothy. He says, but you... He says, but you, O man of God, flee these things, the the things of these false teachers, pursue these things, godliness, righteousness, and so on, the six things that he listed. And then he said, and fight the good fight of the faith. Don't give in to these false teachings that are entering in and causing so many, those teachers as well as so many others, to swerve off the path. He said, Timothy, you're not like that. And that's why I'm sending you there, among other reasons. And so fighting for that, let's reread, if you will, verse 11, starting in verse 11. We're going to pick up after that today. But he says, but as for you, a man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Talks about that good confession that Timothy made. It was, it is clear. God put a call on Timothy's life from when he was a young man. He was fortunate to be raised by a grandmother and a mother that knew the Lord and invested the things of the Lord into his life. And at a very young age in this person, in Timothy's life, that caught on with him. And he bought into it. 
And he began, I'm going to pursue the Lord with my life, and if God wants to use me in the lives of other people, then here I am, I'm available for God to do that. That was a special call that God put on the life of this fellow Timothy. And Paul saw that, other people saw that, the elders of the churches that they were working with saw that, and they they basically confirmed that in Timothy's life. This wasn't just some random idea Timothy had, that would be a neat thing to do with my life ministry. This was a call that God put on his life, and he obeyed it. And people saw that in his life, and they confirmed that. And so we read this in 1 Timothy 6, where it says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And because Timothy accepted that call, look down a little bit further, where it talks about, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So the call was there. And Timothy accepted the call. That's the good confession that he made. And that leads us to where Paul now comes in verse 13. He says, look, since you were called and since you accepted the call, you've enlisted. You've raised your hand. You said, I'm in. You know, what's the oath that I have to take? I'm in. Uh, And I'm taking the oath. And now Paul was his commanding officer, so to speak. And he said, all right, well, here's what you need to do. And so we come to it. Verse 13, he says, I charge you. In the presence of God, and I'll remind you that word charge, it mean, it's a military term. That's what a commanding officer will say to uh, the private or whomever you might have there. This is what you have to do. Eh, I don't really want to do that. Yeah, that's not how it works anymore. You took the oath. You're in, and you're going to do it. He says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, he says, amen. He begins with the words, uh, this charge. Now, this is the third time in this book that Paul has specifically charged Timothy. It's the sixth time in the book that he's used that particular term, and in some instances he tells Timothy to charge other people certain things, but this is the third time that he's used this term toward Timothy. The first was in chapter 1, verse 18. He said, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by, by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Go be a minister and do it well. He says, I charge you to do that. Chapter 5, verse 21, he said another time, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And now here in chapter 6, he again, he charges him. And this time, the charge is that he keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, if you read through some of the wording there and you separate some verses, parentheses, so to speak, he says, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Again, Timothy voluntarily agreed to this call. And like a, someone enlisting in the military, it's now his responsibility to do what his commanding officer tells him to do. Uh, his immediate officer is Paul. And so Paul charges him. Now, Paul doesn't specifically say what the commandment is here. 
that he's charging him with. He doesn't go on to say specifically what it is, but in light of the context of the entire book, and in light of the fact that he refers to it as the commandment, as opposed to, I charge you to keep all commandment, you know, one of the many that I've given you, but he says the commandment here, I think we can safely conclude that the commandment is that he maintained the truth of the Christian faith that he has been arguing for throughout this book. And again, that he not swerve off into the vain teachings that had caused many other people to swerve off after those things. That's the charge that he is giving to Timothy. The instruction that he gives Timothy is that he keeps this commandment, and as you see there in the verse, it goes on to say, without reproach and without stain. Keep it. Now that phrase, to keep, is an important one in the sentence. It's a word which means to guard. It means to take careful care of, and it means to attend carefully to something. And so Paul, or Timothy, is to guard the message of the gospel that was being tainted by others. He's to take careful care of it. He's to attend to it dutifully or mindfully. And that's how Timothy is to approach the word of God and the message of the word of God. There were a lot of false teachers in Ephesus that weren't doing that. Timothy was sent there to do that. Attend to it carefully, guard it, take careful care of it. And he was, notice, he was to do that in light of who he was actually serving, according to that verse there. Um, That's why he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all these things, uh, and to Christ Jesus, his testimony, to keep the commandment. He was to do that in light of who he was serving. Now, take notice, he's not serving Paul. He's serving Jesus Christ. He's not serving Paul, he's serving Jesus Christ. Paul sent him there. Paul commissioned him. Paul and some others laid their hands on him, certainly so, but he's going there and he's serving the Lord Jesus Christ. That's no different from any one of us. Wherever we go, whatever we do as representatives of Jesus Christ, we're ultimately serving the Lord. He says to him here, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God. He's calling Timothy to be mindful of the presence of God in his life. You know, a whole lot of sin in our lives can be eliminated if we were just a little more conscious of the presence of God as we went about our day. You would, I'm I'm sure, you would live your life very differently in the secret times if you were more aware of, and if I was more aware of, God's presence in those places and in those times. You'd probably live your life differently if there was another human being beside you, let alone if the God of the universe was beside you. A whole lot of sin can be eliminated in our lives if only we would realize the one in whose presence we perpetually live. Timothy was going off to Ephesus, and he was doing so without the Apostle Paul. Paul couldn't go. We talked about that in one of our previous studies. And so Timothy's going there, and you know what? He's going to be the one that's in charge, and he's going to be the one that's calling the shots. And he's going to be the one making the decisions that others would be expected to follow. Now, how important it is then for Timothy to remember that the Lord is going with him. And that any decision that he made and any way in which he led the people and things that he said and how he said them, in every single instance there, Paul may not have been right beside him to say, I wouldn't do that, or watch your tone, or any of those things, but the Lord would be. And so he tells him here, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, keep the commandment unstained and free 
from reproach. Timothy was to be a steward, not of the things of Timothy, and not even of the things of Paul, but he was to be a steward or a manager of the things of God. And it was to God that he would ultimately one day give an account. And so Paul tells him, be mindful of the fact that you ever live in the presence of God. I think if we did that in our lives, we would see some things being kind of put away from our lives. Wouldn't you agree? As you're walking with Christ on a daily basis, practice the presence of God. Get into the habit of communicating with God through every single circumstance you face. Develop your prayer life. You don't have to necessarily, I think it's good to do it from time to time, but you can't always do it. But develop a personal prayer life where you are in communion with God when you're mowing the lawn, when you're driving the car, when you're cooking the food, whatever it is you're doing. You're communing with him in the midst of it. Practice the presence of God. It would change things. Now, this same knowledge about the perpetual presence of God, it's also important, especially in those instances where Timothy would find himself beginning to feel the pressure to give in to the fear of man. And so there's an aspect of it where it keeps our hearts where our hearts need to be, where I'm not getting all proud and boastful and I can do what I want because I'm the guy that's in charge and those kinds of things. And so I'm in the presence of God. I should submit to God. But there's also this reality that the, the knowledge of the presence of God will help me deal with my fear of others and the fear of man. And we know that that was a struggle of Timothy. Paul wrote a number of different things to him as we're reading between the lines. We say, you know what, I bet Timothy struggled with that. Here's one of them, 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said, let no one despise you for your youth. The point that Paul is making there is that Timothy would be intimidated by some of the older folks in the congregation or the people that have been believers a lot longer than him or knew a lot more or more charismatic or whatever it might be. Timothy says, no, let no one, or Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth fear of man. In the second letter to Timothy, one of the next books we're going to be looking at together on Sunday mornings, he says this, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It seems pretty obvious that Timothy struggled with fear of doing what it was he was being called to do leading other people, leading older people, or whatever it might be. And because of that, Paul has to tell him, don't give in to your fear, don't give in to your timidity, remember whose presence you go forward in. Timothy was a young man and sent to do a pretty difficult job. And it seems his disposition was one that was naturally deferential to others. The problem, and that's a good, I have no problem with that personally, I, I wish more people were like that more deferential to others. But the problem was Timothy was going to have to lead there. And there were going to have to be these times of confrontation. And there were going to be these times where deference wouldn't be acceptable if he was going to be a good leader. Are you with me? And he would have to have those difficult conversations. And that thought, it seems, scared Timothy. How important to Timothy that in those instances he realized that Jesus was standing right beside him and with him, or right behind him, if you will. So he would not chicken out uh, when he became fearful of others. The fear of man is very real. Anybody struggle with that? Nobody here? That guy does, yeah. Sure it is. And, and sometimes we're intimidated by other people. Other times, what are people going to think of me? What if I fail? 
It'll be so embarrassing, and so I better not do anything. And well, I didn't fail. Well, you didn't do anything, you know, whatever. And so the fear of man, I bet everyone in this room, in some way or another, we struggle with the fear of man. Even some of us here are real tough. I ain't afraid of no man. Okay. Um, you know, somewhere deep down, you probably are. So the fear of man is very real. And I think it's okay. The fear of God, however, must be greater than the fear of man. And what's important is, all right, so you're afraid of this circumstance, or you're afraid to have that conversation, or you're afraid to step out into that particular area. That's fine to have the fear. Just don't let it limit you. You have to move forward in what it is that God is calling you to move forward in. And so either you can give in to the fear of man, and that person will be happy with you, and if you will, so to speak, disappoint God, or you can give in to the fear of God, and that person may be upset with you. You with me on where I'm going with this? What's greater? Who do you desire to be more pleased with you, so to speak? Again, the problem's not in being afraid. The problem is when we allow that fear of man to hinder us from what it is that God is calling us to do. And so Paul here, he tells him, he says, I charge you in the presence of God. What a helpful reminder for Timothy. He goes on and he reminds Timothy, Paul that is, he reminds Timothy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Paul points out, who made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Now, you come from a traditional Christian background, you know the name Pontius Pilate, it's in the creeds. You know, we say, uh, crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered, died, and buried, and I used to have it memorized a long time ago. I don't remember it all right now. Um, but the name, you've I heard of that guy, but maybe you don't know who Pontius Pilate is, so let me remind you in case you're not. Pontius Pilate, the Jews during the time of Christ uh, were under the control of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire gave them some freedom, you know, live the way you want to live, do what you want to do, but remember, we're in charge here. And they sent a governor, or they set a governor over the Jewish people there in Judea, Jerusalem and so on, all of those places there. The Roman governor that they placed in charge of that area was this fellow by the name of Pontius Pilate. And since the Jews were subjugated to the Romans, then the Jewish leaders that wanted to put Jesus to death had to get permission of the Roman leaders. They just couldn't do it on their own. And so they had to bring Jesus before this Roman governor, this fellow by the name of Pontius Pilate. We have the record of this trial of Jesus before this Roman governor. It's found in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 18. There's not a lot of events in Jesus's life that are recorded in all four Gospels. Oftentimes you'll find them in two of the Gospels, maybe three of the Gospels, but there's not a lot of events in all four Gospels. This trial before this man Pontius Pilate is found in all four of the Gospels. And you can go back, you can read them. Again, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 18. In every one of those accounts, they're not identical. There's a little information here that you picked up here, some information there. Nothing contradicts one another. It's just a different eyewitness and what they wrote down. But in every one of those accounts, Pilate directly asks Jesus whether or not he was the king of the Jews. That was part of this accusation that the religious leaders were bringing against Jesus is he's trying to overthrow the Roman government. We love the Roman government. We would never want that to happen, which wasn't true. Uh, but nonetheless, they were putting that on Jesus, thinking that's going to get him executed by the Romans. 
And so in all of those accounts, Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And our Lord's response to that question was something to the effect of, it's slightly different in the four Gospels, was something to the effect of, you have said so. Yes, he say, he's saying there. Now, John's account tells us that in addition to responding to the question, are you the king of the Jews, that, uh, that Jesus answered that question, that he went on further and there was this dialogue, this back and forth. You can read that in John's account. And Jesus said to Pilate, this is interesting, Jesus is on trial for his life, and Jesus puts Pilate on trial and begins to ask Pilate questions. And he says, are you asking this for others or for yourself? I think we might reword that. Do you really want to know the answer to that question is what he says to him. He's confronting Pilate. He says, let's talk about your spiritual well-being, he says to him in so many words here. And Pilate gives sort of this quizzical response, like, well, am, I, am I on trial? <laughs> like, what is going on here? And this is what we have after that. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus says, you said it. He says, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born and for this pur purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone is of the, who is of the truth listens to my voice. And that's where Pilate will respond and he'll say, what is truth? We don't know the exact tone of it. He really wants to know. He's being a jerk. Who knows? But he says, what is truth? Now, remember the context of this whole thing. From an earthly perspective... This man, Pilate, that Jesus is standing from, he has the ability to deliver Jesus from death or unto death. What he decides right here, right now, Jesus is either going to be killed and crucified or he's going to be let go. Pilate is going to make this particular decision. And yet, notice Jesus, he doesn't make any attempt to win Pilate over. He doesn't make any attempt to deny these charges that he is a king or something like that and say they misunderstood or this is blowing out of control or you know the truth, Pilate, they're just trying to get me. Any of these kinds of things, he just gives it to him. He lays it out there. He puts Pilate on trial and he says, do you really want to know the answer to that question? He doesn't beg for his life and nor does he vigorously deny the charges that were brought against him. And we're told that Pilate is amazed. Pilate's never been at a trial for someone that, was about, that possibly could be executed that responded the way that Jesus responded. Every one of them are willing to say whatever it needs to be said to get off. And here is, is Jesus, just laying it out there calmly and truthfully. And the Bible says that Pilate was amazed by that. And so not only didn't Jesus shrink in the moment of confrontation, he actually goes on and amplifies the charges that were being brought against him. He had, as Paul told Timothy, made the good confession, which is what we see in our passage, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. Knowing that it was going to cost him his life, Jesus confessed that he was indeed the King and the Messiah. And in the face of danger, he doesn't back down. In the face of danger, he doesn't alter the truth. In the possible fear of man that one might expect, the person in that situation might face, he didn't let it alter him in any way. And according to Paul, that's his exhortation to Timothy. You need to do the same thing. 
You need to be committed to the truth. You can't back down in the face of fear. You can't let that alter who you are. And so when Timothy was tempted to shrink from battle, when you're tempted by the fear of man, Paul's exhortation is to remember Jesus, to put your eyes back on Jesus, to fix your heart and your mind back on the Lord and his bold confession. And Paul's exhortation to him from that is that it would encourage him to make his own bold confession of the faith. And so Timothy, he was to fix his eyes on the Lord, so to speak. And notice what Paul goes on to say, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a, Timothy, look, man, you just need to do it one time. Do it one time and then you can go on and you're good to go. This is do it again and again and again and again until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy was to fulfill this charge, this commandment, fixing his eyes on Christ until he came to the end of his days. And whether the end of his days came because Jesus Christ physically and visibly returned or the end of his days came because he passed off the scene, he died, what Timothy was going to have to do was remain steadfast for the remainder of his days, to remain firm, to remain true, all the way to the end of his days. And he was to do that by calling to mind all of these things about God. Number one, God's with him. He's always going to go with him. That's that idea of the presence of God. Some of the other things, notice, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. That's God's power. God's power is seen in the fact that he and he alone gives life to all things. He is the creator of all things. No wonder there's such an attack against the creation. He's the creator of all things. He gives life to all things. The Bible says he is the sustainer of all things, that he holds all things together. And because of him, they have their being. All of these things he gives life to. That was supposed to encourage Timothy. He's the source. God alone is the source of life. And he has the power to raise back to life. And God alone has that authority and that power. And so even if his detractors here on the earth should rise up and kill Timothy. Timothy knows that, that is, that's all they can do to him because God alone has the power to raise back to life even if need be. Now, Paul doesn't mention this verse here, but I, I can't help but call to mind Jesus' words in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, certainly, I don't think that was a risk of which Timothy would need to fear that he was going to be cast off into hell or something like that. But I do think the point is the same, that it's God and God alone that is the one in whom our fear should be such that it alters our behavior. It impacts our behavior in the way we live our lives as we go forth. Paul tells him, fear God, not man. Paul calls upon Timothy to fulfill this duty based upon who God is. He goes on further. To describe who this God is, he says, which he will display, this is verse 15, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, he says, amen. So he begins verse 15 by completing the thought from verse 14, which had to do with the personal and visible return of Jesus Christ, he says, which he will display 
in the proper time. Jesus declared on multiple occasions that he would physically return a second time to the earth. A verse that comes to mind, the first verse really that comes to mind when I think of that is John chapter 14. And you remember John chapter 14, last week of Jesus' life, he's interacting with his disciples. So I have things like the Last Supper uh, and so on. And there he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus Christ said he would come a second time. I'm reminded of the words of those angels. Remember those two angels in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1? As the disciples are standing there with Jesus, Jesus is physically taken up into the heavens, and the disciples who were just talking to him are sitting there looking up. And then these couple of angels sneak up behind him, boo, you know, and they, they kind of like surprise him. And they, they say, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking up? I'll, I'll read the passage to you. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus Christ will return a second time visibly and physically. This Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You've heard of the Olivet Discourse, perhaps, Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 25. It's this long teaching of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and so it's called the Olivet Discourse. The entire Olivet Discourse, which gives a very orderly and extended discussion of last day's events in sort of like this, just this, it's, read it, it's really good. Matthew 24 to Matthew 25, uh, and you almost can like, oh, I wonder if that's happening now. You know, as you just sort of read through this, as Jesus kind of lays out the last day's events, it's all prompted by this question from the disciples. It says, when he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What will be the sign of your coming? And so the, the Bible is very clear. The clear reading of Scripture is that Jesus Christ is going to visibly and tangibly return to the earth, and that shortly thereafter he will judge the living and the dead. He'll set up his kingdom, that millennial kingdom, and from there he will rule and reign for a thousand years. He's coming a second time. And he will do so, notice what Paul reveals here in our passage, which he will display at the proper time. The second coming of Jesus Christ, just like the first coming of Jesus Christ, it's going to occur at a time that is ordered and appointed by the Father. You know how we sing that song at Christmas, O Holy Night, one of my favorite hymns? We sing, O Holy Night. Holy is a word, you know, you know what it means, but among other things, it means a, a unique, a set-apart person or a set-apart period of time. That night, when Jesus Christ was born and laid in that manger there in the little town of Bethlehem, that was the appointed moment in time that God would bring forth his son in the first coming. Well, there is a similar appointed moment in time when he will come a second time to the earth here. Paul says he will, he will be displayed at the proper time of that time, Remember that Olivet Discourse I mentioned a moment ago? Jesus said this, but concerning that day 
And concerning that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so we don't know that appointed time. We can look at the signs, you know, like Paul or one of the fellows was talking. I guess it was Jesus, not a fella, forgive me. But as he was talking, he said, like, you can look at the sky and say, man, we're going to have a storm today. Or look at the sky and say, man, it's going to be a beautiful day today or whatever. You can read the signs. He says, look at the signs. We can know that it's drawing closer and closer and closer. But as far as the actual day and hour, we don't know. We don't know when it will be that Christ will come again. But as believers, we can be absolutely certain that he is coming again because that's the clear teaching of Scripture. And so it's our responsibility then as believers, as we wait for his return, it's our responsibility to wait faithfully for his return with our eyes looking up to heaven saying, Lord, if today is the day, I'm ready. As opposed to, oh, Lord, not now. Please don't come now. I would hate for you to find me doing this or whatever. This is what we read in the book of 1 John. It says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There is nothing that needs to occur before Jesus Christ comes for his church. There's not some like event, well, first, you know, Israel has to be reborn. Well, that already happened or whatever. There's nothing that we have to look to and say, this must happen first, then Jesus can come for his church. He can come at any moment. Are you ready for the return of Jesus Christ for you? Now, this idea of Christ's return and the fact that it is at the direction of the Father, it it seems as if it stirs something in the Apostle Paul. And so Paul then, he launches off into like, Phrase after phrase after phrase about the magnificence of God. I like the way one commentator, he described it. He says, it's as if the words seem almost to tumble over one another in, in an effort to express that which is inexpressible. And that's what it seems that Paul is doing here. So in describing the Father, this is what Paul says. And I've read it a few times, but we'll do it again. It says, now he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable life, who no one has ever seen or can see. In this effort here to describe and inspire, to inspire Timothy, he describes the Father. He begins by calling God the only, uh, that God alone is the blessed and only sovereign. God alone is the one that has all power and all strength, and all authority. God alone is the one who rules over the heaven from his throne, or the universe, from his throne in heaven. There's only one source of strength for the ministry Timothy has to do. There's only one real source of courage for that. There's only one real source of perseverance for that. For any one of us that are trying to serve God in our lives, I want to live my life in such a way, Lord, that you use little old me for eternity in the lives of other people. Well, if that's our desire, you've probably been there. Like today, you're really fired up for it. A couple days from now, I don't know, it's a lot of work or whatever. When we look back to God, who alone is the blessed, who alone is the sovereign, who dwells in unapproachable light, and so on and so forth, that's a motivating factor as we continue to go on. It gives us strength, it gives us courage, it gives us perseverance. And so he begins by reminding Timothy of the sovereignty of God in the affairs of men. There was only one sovereign 
It's not Caesar that was in Rome. It's not that guy that's kind of running our church over there with his mouth or whatever it might be. It's God and God alone. He alone is the sovereign one. And there is no one that can vie with God for that position. Right? You agree? There's no one. And that reality, that should be a very encouraging doctrine for each one of us, the sovereignty of God. Because we can live our lives in a way, and we have to do our very best, and we're trying our hardest, and we're trying to learn, and all that, of course. But to know that I can go forward, and look, God's in control. And God's going to accomplish what God is going to accomplish. He's going to use me as he's going to use me. I'm going to just present myself as, a, as pure a vessel as I can and let God work through me. Well, that causes you to take a real deep breath, doesn't it? Oh, okay, I can do this. It's not an impossible task because the sovereign one is working through me. And because he is in total control, we don't have to worry. We don't have to compromise. We don't have to capitulate to what others want us to do. We don't have to scheme. We don't have to do any of those things. We can just faithfully serve the Lord and let the Lord do what the Lord is going to do. What great peace comes from that. Amen? It's so good. It really is good. I think that's probably the most important thing I possess as a human being is that reality, is that knowledge, is that I walk with God God is sovereign. I'm going to try and honor him. When I fail, I'll confess my sin. He's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive me. He'll dust me off and he'll send me forth. And together we're going to accomplish exactly what he wants my life to accomplish this side of heaven. And when I come to the end of my days, if I'm still, you know, I have my wits or whatever it might be, I come to the end of my days and I say, all right, Lord, here was the life I have lived. I presented it back to you as an offering. I hope you were pleased. And he says, you did an okay job. <laughs> Enter into the joy of the Lord. Praise the Lord. How peaceful that reality is. And I hope every one of us here knows that reality. And I will say this, it begins with a right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't been born again, if you haven't been saved, if you haven't experienced this process where the newness of life enters into your life, that means you still have sin in your life that hasn't been dealt with, that hasn't been paid for. I'm not saying you're the worst person in the world, but before God, there's something that is, there's a block. And that block has to be dealt with, it has to be put away, and it has to be bridged. And it's bridged through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But when that happens, then we have an unhindered relationship with God. And that's where all this peace and stuff that I'm talking about, it comes from. It's a great peace. Now Paul goes on and he calls him the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's the only sovereign, therefore he must be the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He goes on from there, he says, he alone has immortality. Well, there's no creature like him in all of heaven and in all of earth like him. He's the immortal one. And it's an immortality that originated with him. He's always been immortal. It goes on, it says that he, dwell, he who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. I think Paul was writing a little bit here from personal experience when he talks about this unapproachable light. You recall how at the time of his conversion, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul wasn't always a Christian. As a matter of fact, there was a time in his life where he tried to destroy the Christian faith, and he actually put to death people that named Christ, that were Christians. And he took it upon himself, not just to casually, if I run into one, I'm going to get them. He went and sought them out and forced many of them to deny the faith, and he even executed some of them that were unwilling to deny the faith. 
Well, Paul is going, uh, seeking to go to a particular city. It's called Damascus, the city is. It's still in existence today. And he was on the road to Damascus there, and Paul there is knocked down to the ground, and he's blinded by the light of glory. And he's on the ground there, and he's blinded by that particular light, and he begins to communicate, if you will, with this light. And he later goes on to tell the story. Here's the story. It says, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven that was brighter than the sun. So this isn't a bright light in the middle, at like midnight. It's a bright light that was bright in the middle of the day, which is already bright. And it was shining around me and those uh, who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, well, who are you, Lord? Notice that. He doesn't know who he is, but he knows he's God. But he's not like, so what's your name? I know you're God, but I don't know your name. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. How amazing. Jesus, Paul, as far as we know, never met Jesus, but he was persecuting his followers. And as far as Jesus is concerned, you're persecuting me when you persecute my fathers. And so when Paul talks about that unapproachable light, he was speaking from experience because he had seen that bright light, brighter than the noonday sun. He goes on, he adds, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now, there are some that this causes them to wonder because there are occasions in the scripture where it says a person saw God or a person interacted with God face to face. And yet here is Paul saying nobody has ever seen God. Some of those examples, Genesis chapter 32. We're told in Genesis 32 that Jacob, the patriarch, that Jacob wrestled with God. And as he came to the conclusion of that night of wrestling, he was off on his own sleeping somewhere. The big battle was about to happen, all this kind of stuff. And he's having this difficult time at night. He's wrestling with God at night. It says, and we know it's a literal wrestling because he's injured from the wrestling, we learn as well. But at the conclusion of that night, he says, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been spared. So Paul says nobody has ever seen God. This here says I saw God face to face. In the book of Judges, we have the story of the parents of Samson. If you're familiar with that name, doesn't matter if you're not necessarily right now, but there's this fellow in the book of Judges named Samson. And his parents had an interaction with what that passage calls the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. That afterward led Samson's dad to declare this. He says to his wife, he says, we shall surely die for we have seen God. And I love his wife's response. She's like, we're not going to die. He, if he wanted to kill us, he would have killed us or whatever. So it's kind of fun. Um, but he said, no, we're going to die. We saw God. Isaiah, the prophet, you've heard of him. It's, he said this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So you have all those examples, and there's probably others, but you have all those examples there in the Old Testament of people seeing God face to face, and yet here is Paul saying nobody can see God face to face, that he dwells in an unapproachable life. You, you have what seems to be an apparent disparity. Would you agree? Okay, now I think it's answered in Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33 is where Moses 
has his face-to-face, if you will, encounter with God. Maybe you're familiar with the passage. The passage, this is where it says, the Lord met with Moses face-to-face. That's Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. And it was in that meeting where Moses received a commission from God to lead the people from, they had come out of slavery, they're sort of in the wilderness, and now they're going to be taken from this spot and brought to the promised land, and God tells Moses to do this. And here's Moses' response. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, this is in their little meeting here in this tent, He says, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. It goes on. And he said, well, my presence will go with, this is God, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, then don't send me from here. Do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Now, you can can read the whole passage on your own. It's Exodus chapter 33, but here's the point that we want to get to. This is verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Now, Moses said, God, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face will not be seen. Now remember, earlier, it was verse 11, I think we said, it talked about Moses sat and met with God face to face. Here then, a little later, he says, I want to see your face. And he says, you can't see my face. And then he goes on to explain, but here's what I'll do. He says, I'll pass by you in all of my glory, but I'm going to cover your eyes as I do. And when I get far enough away from you, and you just see sort of like the, the ends of my glory, I'll let you see that. Because if I let you see me in all of my glory, you'll die of a heart attack. He didn't say that, but you get the point, right? You with me? All of those other individuals that saw God face to face, saw that in you know, the hands over the eyes as God was drifting away, so to speak. And that's what Paul is talking about. If God were to reveal his entirety of his glory to any one of us, we would, be, we would die. We couldn't come into his presence in that particular way. And that's the point that Paul is trying to get at uh, in this passage here, that God dwells in unapproachable light that no one this side of eternity can see him in his full glory. And it's to this God that he says, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who alone has immortality, the one who dwells in unapproachable life, the one whom no one has ever seen or can see. It's to this God that Paul says, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Now again, don't forget the reason why Paul has launched off into these comments here. 
and the magnificence of who God is. And this benediction, really, magnificent benediction, don't forget the purpose of it. The whole purpose of it was to encourage Timothy, fight the good fight. I don't know if I can. Timothy, fight the good fight. And as you do, think about the God you serve, the, the blessed, the only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords who dwells in unapproachable life that no, light that no eye has seen or can even imagine his glory. Think about him as you go forth to fight your fight. It was designed to encourage Timothy, and it's designed to encourage you and I. And so again, we go back to live life, walk your walk, go to your place of business, do what it is that you do on a daily basis as a follower of Christ with the reality of the presence of God in your life. And what is the presence of God? It's the one that dwells in unapproachable life. It's the only sovereign. It's the one that no eye can see, and so on and so forth. You understand where I'm going with that? In light of who God is, who else would we reasonably go to? And who else should we reasonably, like logically, should we serve? No one, right? In light of who God is. And nothing should motivate a man of God or a woman of God like that. And that, again, is a true understanding of the greatness of God. And so my hope is, today, just in a little bit of our study, is that we're reminded of who it is that we serve. And I'm so grateful, personally, in my own walk with Jesus Christ, I'm so grateful that I can have an intimacy of relationship with God. Any one of us that is a Christian, we can. And we can interact with God, and we can bring anything we want to bring to him, and he will hear us and respond, and all that sort of stuff. And I love the intimacy of fellowship that we can have with God. But I think sometimes we run the risk of being too buddy-buddy with God. And we forget who God really is, and that he does dwell in unapproachable life, and that we are just mere mortals compared to him. And so, you know, this whole idea, when I get to heaven, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell God, you're not. You, nobody will. You're going to get to heaven and you're going to see him in his glory and you're going to recognize, you know what, it wasn't important. I don't have any questions. I'm just happy to be here. And so my prayer for myself this week, my prayer for us this week, is that the greatness of the glory of God would sort of swell our hearts so that we can walk in a greater degree of, of that greatness this week. Make sense? Let's pray together. And so, Father, that's a work that you can do. Lord, I, I think uh, even when I came to faith, I wasn't looking for you. Paul wasn't looking for you. We, we referenced that passage today. I, I've talked to so many people in this room, and it wasn't what, like we decided we were going to become a Christian today or something like that. It was just this process you did in our lives. And you opened up our hearts, and you gave us understanding. And, Lord, you can do that again this morning, really with the reality of your magnificence, the greatness of your love and your goodness and your kindness and your holiness and your righteousness and all of the characteristics of God that we just have a, an inkling of an understanding of. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would enlarge our hearts with an understanding of these things. And it would increase, if you will, Lord, our reverence for who you are, our devotion to you, or desire to know you in a greater way. It would serve as a reminder to us that there is no man that we should fear as we fear our God. 
and that we would walk in that reality and that we would do so, Lord, for for your glory. And we believe, Lord, you'd be honored by that. And that's our desire. We want to lift up your holy son. And so we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.